Hi, and welcome to Stony Creek Radio, the sermon podcast of Stony Creek Baptist Church in London, Ontario. We're glad you've tuned in for today's sermon. My name is Ryan, and I'll be your host today. If you're listening to Stony Creek Radio for the first time, this series begins on episode 16. As we study Ecclesiastes together in this series, Chasing the Wind, we're going to be wrestling through some of life's biggest and most important questions. And our prayer is that we'll see together how God brings meaning to everything under the sun by means of His Son. Thanks for joining us. Let's jump right into today's sermon. You can open your Bible to the book of Ecclesiastes. It's only by God's providence that we are in this book today, because if had I not announced it a couple of weeks ago, I would have changed it. (laughs) As I began to study through this book, the first line I read was, Ecclesiastes is one of the most difficult books in all of the scriptures to interpret. And I thought, well, who said that? They don't know what they're talking about. You look down at the footnote, said Martin Luther. (laughs) It's like, oh, he knows what he's talking about. We're going to work through this book together over the next five to six weeks is the plan at this point. We're going to be looking at certain things. Alistair Begg talks about the pop-ups, they're called. So certain times in the book of Ecclesiastes where there are these pop-up truths that come out. So we're going to be focusing our series around that. Uh, I grew up in the late 80s into the 90s, and I realized that as I say that, as I was writing that down, it kind of hit me that that's like my parents when I was growing up talking about the 60s. And that made me feel really old just thinking that. But in the late 80s and the 90s, one of the staples in our home that we would do together was watch the new episodes of Full House as they came out. And I was reminiscing about our times watching Full House together over this past week with the news of Bob Saget's passing. Bob Saget played Danny Tanner, who's the dad on Full House. And he was found this past week, last weekend, dead in his hotel room. He was 65 years old. What struck me about that, and his death in particular, was a tweet that he had put out. A post on social media that he had put out that night, the night when he went to bed. And he just essentially tweeted out that he loved tonight's show. He thanked the audience and then posted a link to his future dates that his comedy tour was going to continue on. In other words, he had absolutely no idea that when he would close his eyes that night to sleep, he wasn't going to wake up. I have a stat that I want to share with you, and it's a, I don't usually share stats because 90% of stats are made up. (laughs) And that stat I just gave you is in that 90%. But this particular stat is not. And it's a particular stat that uh, the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to be able to grasp. It's a stat that we are going to see time and time again throughout this book, and we're going to be forced to have to wrestle with it. And it's a stat that many do not want to believe is true. And in fact, many spend a lot of their lives doing everything they can as if this wasn't true, living their lives as if this wasn't true. But for those who accept this stat as an accurate stat, it has the potential of completely transforming our lives. As the author of Ecclesiastes is going to say, accepting this stat is the first step to living a purposeful life. 
Accepting this stat is the first step into learning how to really live. Do you want to know what that stat is? If you were kids and I was doing a day camp, I would say, you got to come back next week to find that stat. And all of you would shout and scream. And I'd say, you want to find out now? I'm building up this stat, but it's actually very simple. But it's profound. And this is the stat. Every one in one person dies. If you look to the person to your left, a day will come when that person will die. You look to the right, a day will come when that person is going to die. You look in the mirror, that person one day is going to die. And a hundred years from now, no one is going to remember you. A hundred years from now, no one is even going to know your name. Even your great-great-grandkids are not going to even know who you are. Unless they're into genealogies, they won't know your name, let alone anything about you. And you think, well, no, my great-great-grandkids, they're going to sit around the living room and reminisce about all of my life adventures. No, they're not. How many of you even know the names of your great-great-grandparents? If you do, it's because you're into genealogies. You probably know nothing about them. And that sounds like a... Depressing fact. And some of you are thinking, I thought church was supposed to be happy. This isn't happy. This is depressing. But this is what the author of Ecclesiastes wants us to come to grips with. And in fact, this particular stat, accepting that stat is true, is going to be very important for us to know how God has called us to live on this earth for the time that we are alive here and so he wants us to wrestle with this. He wants us to come to grips with this, of, of living in the real world. Because this is the, the reality is, I think a lot of us, what we like to do is pretend that that's not going to happen. We live our lives as if we are going to live forever. I have six kids, my three in particular that I still play pretend with or imagination kind of, those kind of games with. Libby is six years old. She loves to play doctor. And any time that I get sick, all it takes is a kiss to the boo-boo <laughs> or a Band-Aid, and I am healed. If my head falls off, she picks it up, she puts it on, and I am fine. That's the world of make-believe. I have a daughter, Olivia. Right now, I don't know why, but she likes to pretend that she's a pirate. Yvonne and I were just chatting recently, and you hear her out of the basement, just hear, shiver me timbers. It's like she's four years old, yelling out, shiver me timbers, pretending to be a pirate. You get on her bad side, you're going to walk the plank. And you're going to jump in to the sharks, and the sharks are going to eat you. But then in the next minute, she's going to invite you back up onto her ship. My, do- my son Trey is, loves being superheroes, and so he loves to shoot webs out of his hands. He loves to look at me with his eyes like Superman and zap me. And every time, the good guy wins. The bad guy never wins. The bad guy always loses. This is the world of make-believe. The real world doesn't work like that. Sometimes the bad guys flourish. We live in a world where, at the hospital, doctors can't always fix the problem. We live in a world where, if you jump in to a body of water filled with sharks, you are not going to come out alive back on the ship. 
And the book of Ecclesiastes, I believe, as I've been wrestling through this, is really a God's gift to us in how to live our lives in the real world. How to come to terms with and grips with the fact that time is not on our side. That there is a day coming when every one of us is going to die. And this world is not quite as neat and tidy as we want it to be. That we live in a world creation that's groaning for another day because it doesn't like the day it's in today. So how do we come to grips with all of this? And as he does this, what he's going to help us do is answer the question, how then shall I live today? How then shall I live today in light of all of these things? He's going to talk a lot about death. He's going to talk a lot about time in this series and particularly how time and death render everything that we go through as meaningless. This is what he's going to wrestle with and come to terms with. And that sounds maybe a little bit like Eeyore. Like, wah, wah, Eeyore, everything is bad. But my prayer is, as we work through this book, is that you'll see this is not written by an Eeyore. This is not written by an old man who's sitting on his favorite chair drinking Drano for breakfast. (laughs) This is a man who... Solomon, I believe, tradition says, was written towards the end of his life. And after acquiring everything this world has to offer, after being there and doing that, after living every experience that this world would ever say is going to satisfy you, after going through all of that, he's going to share with us at the end of his life, this is what he's learned along the way. This is what we need to embrace as uh, people uh, as he shares what he's learned about the meaning and significance of life. And the lessons that he's going to share with us is going to show us how we can be one step closer to living and enjoying life today, even enjoying life today here on this earth as God intended. And we're going to see Solomon wrestling with a question that that is asked over and over again Still today, if anyone says the Bible is not relevant, point them to the book of Ecclesiastes. The same questions that's wrestled with in Ecclesiastes are the same questions that wrestled with thousands of times over today. And the question he's going to wrestle with over and over again throughout this book, and in the very beginning here, is this What's the point of life? What's the point of this? What's the, what's the meaning of our existence? Why does the universe go on existing as it is? I read a quote from an atheist this week who said, the biz, the, being honest and said, the universe has no, no reason. No, 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 I can't forget, I, the word's not coming to me now and I didn't write it down. But no, the, the, the universe has no business continuing to exist. As he was trying to come to grips with it, that was his conclusion, was this, well, has no business continuing to exist. Life has no meaning. Life has no purpose. And this is a conclusion that a lot of people end up coming with, uh, coming to. So this question, what's the point of life? How can I know lasting happiness that lasts beyond just the moment? How, how can I fill that void in my life? I feel like there's something missing in my life. So what is that? You heard someone say that before. There's got to be more to life than this. You maybe had conversations with someone and they've said to you, I just feel like there's something missing in my life. This is where Ecclesiastes is going to be an incredible gift to us because Ecclesiastes is going to point out what that something is. Or better, what, who that someone is. 
Ecclesiastes is wisdom literature. It's like the book of Proverbs. Um, it's not filled. Wisdom literature is, is difficult to wrestle with sometimes because wisdom literature isn't absolute truths. It's general truths. And you come to the book of Proverbs and you see these general truths listed over and over again. And the book of Proverbs essentially often tells us if you, uh, if you are good to others, if you're nice to others, others are going to be nice and good back to you. Generally speaking, that's how life's going to work. You train up a child in the way he should go. And when he's old, he's not going to depart from it. Generally speaking, that's how it works. But the world doesn't always work that way. And Ecclesiastes, as wisdom literature, is going to come around and tell us that very thing. The world doesn't always work like that. You can train up a child in the way he should go. You, should, you, you can model Jesus in front of your child. You can disciple them in the ways of Jesus. But when they get older, sometimes they're going to walk away. It's a part of the broken world that we live in. The, the world is not quite as clean and tidy as we often want it to be. And Ecclesiastes is going to be like a goad poking us, reminding us of that very truth. It's not always as clean and tidy as we want it to be. And in light of Ecclesiastes being wisdom literature, the teaching is going to come to us not as a prophet speaking absolute truth to the people of God. This is... The kind of passages that I love to preach on are those passages where prophets are speaking to the people. And I just point that out. It's so much simpler than this in Ecclesiastes where Solomon is sitting in a philosopher's chair and he's going to share with us what he observes about the world in which he lives and the experiences that he's had throughout the world. And he's going to look at everything that's under the sun. And we're going to talk about what that means. But everything under the sun. And he's going to ask the question, is that the secret to happiness? I gave my life to pleasure. I gave my life to wealth. I gave my life to power. I gave my life to all of these things. And is that the longing? Is, is that the answer to the longing of my heart? That void that you feel in your, in, your, in your life, that something is missing, is that the answer to it? And Solomon is going to look at all of those and essentially for us deconstruct them. He's going to expose the things that we look to so often for life and meaning and significance. And he's going to expose them for what they really are as vanity, as empty, as meaningless. They don't fill that void that you thought they would. There's nothing under the sun, nor will there ever be anything under the sun that will fulfill the deepest longings that you have. C.S. Lewis has a great quote, says this. If you find yourself with a desire that nothing in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is you were made for another world. Ecclesiastes is going to help us see this. And it's going to point us forward to Jesus. It's been said that Ecclesiastes anticipates Jesus perhaps more than any other book in the Old Testament. And we are going to see that as we work through it together. And that, that shouldn't surprise us. Jesus looked back at the Old Testament. He looked back at the prophets, the writings, and he said, they all speak about me. So as we study through it, we're not going to study through it as if Jesus never walked on this earth, because that would be an incredible injustice for us to work through it. Not having the benefit that we have of being on this side of the cross and seeing how Ecclesiastes anticipates Jesus and the wholeness and the satisfaction and the joy that he brings. So that's what we're going to look through as we look through it together. If you're looking for kind of a purpose statement to the book of Ecclesiastes, 
Ecclesiastes is essentially this. It's an exposition or a bringing to light of all the ways that we try to find meaning, significance, and purpose in life apart from God. Let's look at it together. Ephesians, uh, Ephesians. I wish I was Ephesians. <laughs> Ecclesiastes chapter 1, starting in verse 1. The words of the preacher, the son of David, king in Jerusalem. The word preacher there is the word koheleth. You see the word Solomon is not used. The name Solomon is not given here. And that's led some scholars to say, well, it's not Solomon. The problem with that, I think, is it sounds like Solomon. All the experiences mentioned is is what Solomon went through. Tradition says it was Solomon. So if it walks like a duck, talks like a duck, it's probably going to be a duck. So I'm going to move forward with this idea that it is going to agree with all of history up until the past 100 years or so and believe that this is Solomon who is the one who is writing, who is Koheleth. So so Kohelet is more how you'd be pronouncing it. And Kohelet, that preacher word, uh, that's actually the name of this book in the Hebrew Bible. It's called the Scroll of Kohelet. And you look at uh, the meaning of Kohelet. Kohelet essentially means someone who gathers. So someone who gathers a crowd together, a group of people together, and teaches them and preaches to them, shares life with them. And so that's the idea here. This preacher comes to us as someone who is gathering us together to say, let me teach you something about life. So that's the voice that we have throughout this book, is the words of Kohala. So where does that word Ecclesiastes come from? It's a, it's a strange name for a book, Ecclesiastes. You look at the Old New Testament, you see Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. Those make sense. It's written by Matthew, written by Luke, gospel accounts. What's Ecclesiastes mean? Ecclesiastes is a translation of the word Kohelet. And within Ecclesiastes, you may recognize that term, ecclesia. Many of you know what that term is in the Greek. It means church. And so we're seeing a church means a gathered people. And so what we're seeing here is Kohelet gathering a group of people together, really putting on the hat of a pastor. One of the commentaries that I was using to prepare for this calls throughout, throughout his commentary, Pastor Solomon. And that's the idea here. Pastor Solomon is, is, is gathering the group of the people of God together, and he's going to preach to them as a sage, uh, as a wise man now teaching the people of God. So that's Kohelet. That's where Ecclesiastes come from. Um, tradition says that Solomon wrote Song of Songs at the beginning of his life, more right after his first marriage, before he fell and married all the other women. Then Proverbs in the middle of his life, and then Ecclesiastes towards the end of his life. And so that's the voice that we hear throughout this book. The voice of old man Solomon. Not old man Shinko. But old man Solomon. And this is a man who, by a worldly perspective, had literally everything that this world could ever offer. Um, scripture says he had 700 wives and 300 concubines. That is a lot of sexual pleasure. He had a kingdom that was so large that people were like sand on a seashore, it says. His kingdom was so large, he had so much power. Uh, modern studies have estimated the net worth of Solomon to be around $2.2 trillion. Elon Musk is the richest man in the world today, $288 billion. Solomon is seven and a half times that. So this is a man who literally had everything this world could ever offer. More power, more wealth, 
more pleasure than anyone and perhaps even everyone together combined in this room. And this is his conclusion after looking over all of his life. This verse 2 is both the introduction and the conclusion. This is what he says. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher. Vanity of vanities. All is vanity. Why don't you let that sink in for a moment? This man who had more power than anyone in this world could ever have, more wealth, more pleasure, more than literally everything this world can offer you. And his conclusion is, it's all vanity. The word vanity is the word hevel. Hevel, hevelim is what it says in the Hebrew. Hevel means a breath or a vapor or mist speaks of the temporary nature of life. In the words of Jesus, it's all just sinking sand. Vanity, vanity. It's all just building your life on sinking sand. And this is a key statement that we are going to see throughout this book. And you're going to see him repeating that same thing. Vanity of vanities. It's all vanity. And so some translations you'll see translate that as also meaningless or futility. And it's speaking because, and the reason they translate that is, because the, the literal translation is breath or vapor. But then the context of what he's doing as he uses those statements is to suggest that very thing. Because life is a breath, because life is a vapor, time and death render our lives as essentially meaningless. There's nothing to be gained at the end of it. It's the same word that is actually used in Psalm 144. It says, men is like breath. Like, like Havel, his days are like a passing shadow. So this is uh, something that's speaking about the brevity of life, the temporary nature of our lives, that life is like a vapor. Think of the wind. You ever tried to grab a fistful of wind? You can feel the wind hitting you, but you reach out and you grab the wind and put it in your pocket. Can you do that? If you look in your footnotes later on when it says chasing the wind, it actually uses the term of consuming the wind or eating the wind. And Hosea 12 also talks about Ephraim trying to do the same thing. Same kind of concept. Like you are hungry. Just imagine you're, you're, you're driving on a long road trip and your kids are saying, I'm, I'm hungry. Can we not stop? And you tell them, just roll down your window and eat some wind. <laughs> What's going to happen? You can't eat wind. You can feel it. You can feel it even enter your mouth, but there's nothing there. And that's what he says the pursuit of anything under this sun to find meaning and satisfaction is like. You can feel it. It looks like it's there, but when you go to grab it, when you go to consume it, you realize there's actually nothing there. It's empty. It's like smoke. You can see smoke in front of you, but you can't grab it and keep it. And the pleasures of this world or wealth, it can be like smoke. And we see smoke in the world. We see wealth. We see pleasure. And then we try to grab hold of it, thinking that that's going to be the answer we're looking for. But then when we grab it, we realize our hands are empty. There's nothing there. We're empty. And oftentimes, people that pursue these things, what they discover is it was all just meaningless. It didn't satisfy them like they thought it was going to. And in many cases, they end up being even more broken than they were before as they acquire these things that they think will give them life. And so this is the idea of the word hevel. It's like 
when you try to find meaning and significance in this life apart from God, it's like searching for the winds. It's like, it's like striving after the winds. And you realize that what you thought that it was going to accomplish, what maybe even this world promised you was going to accomplish, what that advertisement told you on TV, that if you have this truck, if you have this particular thing, it's going to satisfy you. You realize that that was kind of pseudo-eschatology that leads us to emptiness. It didn't fulfill us like we thought it would. Now, I want you to understand when he says vanity, vanity, all is vanity, that all is vanity has to be read within its context. It can't literally mean that literally everything is meaningless. Otherwise, why would you be here this morning? Everything I'm saying then is meaningless. If this literally means all is meaningless across the board, we have to understand this is written within a certain context. And the emphasis is not on whether or not certain things contain meaning in and of themselves, but the emphasis is on whether or not those pursuits will lead us into achieving what, they, what we thought they were going to achieve. So all is vanity is this idea that we, we want to grab a hold of something thinking that we, it is going to achieve for us the wholeness and the satisfaction we're looking for. In that context, he says, that is vanity. All is vanity. All searching for meaning and significance under the sun on this earth is meaningless. Solomon looks over the span of his life in this book. He says, I've been there. I've done that. This world is not going to give you what you're looking for. It's utterly futile to pursue meaning and significance in anything this world has to offer. And then verse 3 is the, the, the kind of the key question that he is going to wrestle with in the next several verses, maybe even of the whole book. Verse 3 is this. What does man gain by all the toil at which he toils under the sun? That term under the sun is one that we are going to see time and time again. It literally just refers to everything that we all experience, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're male, female. It doesn't matter who we are. We all experience life under the sun. It's talking about life on this earth, life in this fallen world in which we live. And the reason I say fallen world in which we live is because very clearly here on Solomon's mind is the curse of Adam. And here's why I say this. What does a man gain by all the toil? A man, that's the term Adam. So that points us back to Genesis 1. Hevel is spelled the same as the word Abel, the name Abel, pointing us back to Abel, who is the first man recorded in the scriptures to have died. And then toil is the same word used of the curse of Adam. So very clearly on the back of his mind is Genesis and what happened at the fall of man. And because of the curse, this is why the world is the way it is. So he's got that very much on the forefront of his mind. So what does a man gain by all the toil he toys under the sun? That's a curse-filled question. And that's what leads him to say it's all vanity. What's to be gained? The answer is that he gives us here at this point is absolutely nothing. There is no surplus to be gained by all the toil that we toil in our lives on this earth. And this is what he informs his answer. Verse 4. Generation goes, generation comes, but the earth remains forever. Life is like a sandcastle that you build and is beautiful even in its time, but the tide comes in and washes it away. And when that sandcastle is long gone, the ocean stays, the seashore stays. 
You, breathe, you live, you breathe, you die. Creation goes on without you. And that's an interesting statement to make. This world that we are called to steward is the same creation that is going to be here long after we die is what he's getting at. You can build giant homes. You can build statues. You can build a kind of a great name for yourself. But one day you're going to die and the earth is just going to keep on going on without you. It's a sobering truth, but it's an important one to take heart in to take to heart anyway. Verse 5 goes on. He speaks of the cyclical nature of creation. The sun rises, the sun goes down, and hastens to the place where it rises. The wind blows to the south, goes around to the north, and around and around goes the wind. And on its circuits, the winds return. All streams run to the sea, but the sea is not full. To the place where the streams flow, there they can flow again. So he talks about that cyclical nature of creation. That in the seas, the... That the clouds form from the seas, they move on to the land, it rains on the land, it goes into the rivers, which goes into the seas, and it just keeps going on and on and on, but doesn't go anywhere. And you can look at that and what he mentions here and the order of creation, and you can come to two different conclusions in that. One conclusion you can come to is to see that God has created order in the midst of our creation. This beautiful picture of God and, and, and the, the order that he has made in the midst of all of creation. And actually, Paul picks up on that in the passage that Pastor Andy was speaking about last week. That this was God's design. That God subjected the world to futility. He made it go round and round and round. Why? In hope to point us to somewhere beyond this world. So you can look at that and draw that conclusion, or you can draw the conclusion that Solomon gets to here. And that is, look at the creation. It goes round and around and around and around. And therefore, it's meaningless. It doesn't get anywhere. Verse 8, he goes on, All things are full of weariness. A man cannot utter it. The eye is not satisfied with seeing, nor the ear filled with hearing. So he moves to how... Creation works to now how our senses work. It begins to talk about how the eye is not satisfied with seeing and how true that is. If you want evidence of that truth, look at someone on their phone who just continues to scroll and scroll and scroll. The eye is never satisfied with seeing. And everything you're looking at, there's nothing new under the sun. You've seen it all. You've seen what your friend is having for dinner every day this week <laughs> in the photo that they post on social media. It may be a different dinner, but it's still dinner nonetheless. And yet you keep scrolling and scrolling and scrolling. And what's really interesting is later on in Ecclesiastes, what he is essentially going to say, and this is a paraphrase, but what he's essentially going to say is this. Stop taking pictures of your food and enjoy it for goodness sake. Stop eating your food, trying to show off to other people or show the world what you're eating and take stock in what God has blessed you with as a gift and enjoy it. That's what he's going to get to, but that's for later. The eye is not satisfied with seeing. It just wants to see more. We never get to a point where we say, hey, I've seen everything. 
There's nothing more for me to see. We always want to see more. And this is why our senses don't lead us to that place of fulfillment. Our eyes are not going to come to a point where we say, I'm fully fulfilled, I'm complete, I've seen it all. And then the ear is also not satisfied with hearing. We're never getting to that point where we've seen everything that we want to see and everything we want to hear. We always want to see just a little bit more. And we think that something more, something new that we see is going to bring that satisfaction. And we discover it doesn't. Verse 9, he goes on, what has been is what will be. What has been done is what will be done. There's nothing new under the sun. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new? It's already been in the ages before us. There's nothing new under the sun. That term doesn't mean what sometimes we make it out to mean. It doesn't mean that there's never going to be new inventions or new discoveries on this earth. The point that he's making is there's never going to be a new invention or discovery or innovation on this earth that's going to bring the satisfaction that you long for. There's nothing that has been that's going to do it, and there's nothing that will ever be made that is going to bring that satisfaction you want. And we know that that's not true, that nothing, there's not going to be new inventions, because the, the phone that you're holding in your hand is a very new invention. I remember my dad's first cell phone that he ever had, and it was wired in the car. It was staticky. It was huge, like the size of a brick. <laughs> and now you have in your hand a, a device that can do more than a giant computer could do even 15 years ago. So there are new inventions. There are new things. Space travel may happen in our lifetime. The point he's making is none of that, there's going to be nothing new under the sun that's going to bring that wholeness, that's going to bring that satisfaction, It's going to fill that void that you know is there in your heart. If you're honest with yourself, every one of us has that feeling, or at least had that feeling at one time, like something's missing. I have a void and I don't know how to fill it. There's nothing new that's ever going to happen on this earth that's going to fill that void. Verse 11, there's no remembrance of former things, nor will there be any remembrance of later things yet to be among those who come after. If you look in your footnote in your Bible, it may say something along the lines of, there's no remembrance of former people or of later people. So talking about things, talking about people. And this is what I was referring to at the beginning. As generations come, as generations go, one day you're going to die, and in 100 years, no one's going to even know your name. They're not going to talk about your adventures. You're going to be long forgotten. Today's celebrities are tomorrow's obituaries, and obituaries go into the realm, kind of fade into history and are soon forgotten. And that sounds depressing, and I could leave it right there. And I thought about leaving it right there, but a week is a long time. <laughs> I don't want to leave it there, because I'm fully aware of what happened to Bob Saget could happen to any one of us today. So I don't want to put off this much, and I know it's 11 o'clock already, but hang in there. In light of Solomon's observation that time and death make all work vain, how then shall we live in this temporary fleeting life under the sun? And many people answer this question in different ways. Some people answer this question, this idea of escapism, 
and try to fill their lives, not with inherently evil things, but with things that will fill their minds so that they can escape having to think about these hard realities that Solomon is bringing up. And it happens in every neighborhood, every day, even today. Fill your mind with NFL playoff football. Some of you are like, don't touch football. It's on today. <laughs> Nothing wrong with watching NFL football. What happens, what, where we go into error is when we start to use these things, like watching football, like doing family vacations, uh, filling our mind with all these things to escape these hard realities that Solomon is bringing out here. So escapism is how some people respond. Some people respond with hedonism. If this is all there is, if I'm soon going to be forgotten, I'm going to live life and party it up. Everything I get, I'm going to look out for myself. I'm going to live for myself. I'm going to eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow. I may die, and so I'm going to live it up. People that live that way end up coming to the end of their lives or the, at some point in their life, and they realize that there's something missing. So how then shall we live? Should we just escape it all? Should we just say there's no meaning in any, anything, so let's just move on? Let's just get on with life, wait to die? Should we party it up, hedonist? Solomon's answer that we are going to discover later on is this. How should we live? Let's today abandon human wisdom. Abandon human wisdom that says, this is what you pursue to find satisfaction. Abandon the, the idea of an American dream that's somehow going to satisfy what you're looking for. And number two, let's embrace divine wisdom and understand that the good things in this life are given to you to be enjoyed, but not to make ultimate things. Not to make that to which you find meaning and significance in. And if we put on our gospel lenses, and this is something we have to do throughout this series, knowing that Ecclesiastes point is, points us to Jesus, put on gospel lenses, and what we see Jesus saying is this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added unto you as gifts to you. Not to take and try to use them to fill that void that's there. But we seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and these things are added. We put gospel glasses on, and what we discover is what you do matters. The little insignificant, seemingly insignificant things, they matter in the grand scheme of God's plan. And this is what Jesus does. He redeems our work. Even the act of giving a cup of cold water to someone who's in need matters. Paul says our labor is not in vain. Vanity of vanities, all is vanity. And that's true unless we work as unto the Lord, Paul says in Ephesians chapter 5. So this, and, and, and think in terms of this as well. The, the world may forget about you. And this is where the New Testament is so beautiful in picking up what the Old Testament is laying down here and is going to answer these questions for us. Think in terms of the world that's going to forget about you. And that can be a sad reality, but it doesn't really have to be a sad reality in light of the gospel. The world may forget about you, but this is the good news that we see in the gospels. Remember the thief on the cross? What he said to Jesus? Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus says to him, today 
You'll be with me in paradise. In other words, he says, remember you. Of course, I will remember you. New Testament says in 1 Corinthians 8 that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. So this is the good news that we see in the gospel is that yes, the world may forget about you. Your obituary may fade into the annals of history, but you serve a God who will never forget about you, who will remember you, who is known, who knows you and you can know him for all eternity. Remember you? Of course, I'm going to remember you. You know my son, and he knows you. These beautiful truths that the New Testament answers for us. And so in this way, we give our lives for the sake of that which matters. Maybe you're not going to make a difference in life on this earth. But far more important than that is making a difference for all of eternity. There are Sunday school teachers in this room who have invested in kids, who have led children to the Lord, who are going to be in eternity because of your investment in their life. Jesus redeems our work, and he says, even the seemingly insignificant tasks you do are significant when they're done unto the Lord. So old man Solomon, let's tie this all together. Old man Solomon tells us, I've been there, I've done that, I've lived every experience this world could ever experience, and I have to tell you this. You can learn from me. If you want to try it yourself, go for it. You're going to find the same answer that I came with. So you're better just to listen to me. And this is his answer. Finding wholeness and satisfaction through the pursuits of the world is vanity. Hoping that you can find life and significance and wholeness and meaning in anything in this world is like you chasing after the wind, trying to eat the wind. It's going to leave you empty. It's like building your lives, Jesus says, on sinking sands. And this is how Ecclesiastes points us to Jesus that meaning and that wholeness that Solomon is talking about here. That meaning and satisfaction, the purpose that we desperately long for is found in Jesus Christ, is found when we build our lives on the solid rock of Jesus. The answer to the purpose and the meaning of our lives is found by knowing Jesus And by knowing Jesus, we know and experience abundant life and lasting joy. And can sing that song that we sang earlier, it is well with my soul, regardless of our circumstances. I've heard it said like this, I'm going to close with this. Happiness, and we all long for happiness, do we not? We all long for joy in some way. This is what we long for. Happiness is a byproduct of something. Well, you could say it's a byproduct of someone. When you pursue happiness and make that your goal, when you pursue happiness, what you're going to find is you're not going to get it. When you pursue Jesus, what you're going to find is he has been pursuing you, and you get Jesus. And a byproduct of knowing Jesus is abundant life and lasting joy. 
Let me pray and invite the worship team to come up. Father, we thank you for, thank you for your word. Thank you for your word that's like a goad that forces us to wrestle with questions that we'd rather not wrestle with. That forces us to think in terms of our life on this earth as but a vapor, but a breath. And so I pray, Father, that as we leave today, that we would have this fresh reminder, this fresh desire to seek to work as unto you. Seek to give our lives for that which will matter for all eternity. Knowing that our time on this earth is short, may we be moved today to boldness and courage to invest our lives in eternal things. To build our lives today not on sinking sand, not on something that we are going to define as vanity, as meaningless, but that we will build our lives today on the solid rock of your Son, Jesus Christ, and know through that the one who gives abundant life and lasting joy. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for the ways that it challenges us, and I pray that throughout this series that you would change our perspective where it needs to be changed, that you would move within our hearts afresh and that each one of us would discover the meaning and the purpose and the significance and the wholeness that is found in your Son, Jesus Christ, and in knowing him as Lord and Savior. We pray these things in his name. Amen. Thank you so much for listening. If you've been encouraged by our time today in God's Word, we'd love for you to connect with us on social media and let us know. You can find us on Facebook and Instagram at SCBC London. Until next time, I'm your host, Ryan, and this has been Stony Creek Radio. God bless. Thank you.